So we are today in the second of two sermons in a very brief topical sermon series. So for those who are newer here at CBC, typically what we do on a Sunday morning during the preaching time is make our way sequentially, consecutively through a book of the Bible. And more of that is coming early next year. The last few sermons this year, I'm doing these two topical messages today. I'm doing a message in Psalm 1 and 2 next week that I look forward to. Mackenzie will be preaching from the Psalms on the 26th of December, and we'll be back at Jude and Ruth for next year. There that is. That's free. That'll be published soon. But today, the second of two topical messages on the teaching, the public ministry of Jesus Christ. What is it that Jesus preached? What is it that he taught in his life on earth during those three years, most pointedly, that he did ministry and walked among us? Last week, we considered how Jesus preached himself as the Christ. Jesus preached himself as the Messiah, the promised one. And he clearly understood that he, as the Christ, was the point of the entire Bible. That was last week. If you haven't listened to that message, it's online now, I believe. No, it's not. Like I said, technology has failed us. We were having trouble this week. You can pray for that. We hope it will be online. And you can go back and listen to these two messages together. In this sermon today, the point is that Jesus preached not only himself as Christ, but Jesus preached the law and the gospel. Jesus preached in his ministry on earth the law and the gospel. By way of a few uh, just introductory comments, some things to consider, put on your radar screen. A couple of misconceptions that I think are widely prevalent in the church today. Misconception number one is that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is gospel. The Old Testament contains law, the New Testament gospel. Not true. There is law and gospel in the Old Testament, and there is law and gospel in the New Testament. We're going to be thinking about that today. Misconception number two is that if Jesus said it, it must be gospel. Meaning, if it's one of those red letters, then it must be good news. Because Jesus said it. Also not true. Jesus did preach gospel. And Jesus was the greatest preacher of the law who ever lived. And based upon, if you're going to do a survey of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the words recorded there that Christ spoke by volume, what did he talk about most? He actually spoke much more words of law than he did gospel. A few succinct statements for us, just kind of how we would like to summarize as pastors here the difference between the law and the gospel. So if you're the kind of person that's helped by this, just take note right now. Pay attention. These are helpful paradigms for us when thinking about the law and the gospel. Whenever in the scripture, whenever we read of things that we need to do in order to be righteous, that is law. And whenever we read of things that Christ has done that God gives to us as our righteousness— That is gospel. Next, the law says, do this and live. The gospel says, Christ has done it, now live in him. Next, the law demands everything and gives nothing. The gospel demands nothing and gives everything. This is a short one. And for the kids in the room with your covenant sheets, this is question number one. I'm just going to go ahead and give you the answer to your homework. 
Do, like D-O, do is law. Done, D-O-N-E, is gospel. The gospel, saints, contains nothing in it whatsoever that we are to do. The gospel is only and completely about what Christ has done for us. And if you do not read the Bible, all of it, with the distinction between the law and gospel in view, you are going to trip and fall on your face over and over and over again. How you understand the law itself will be affected. How you understand the gospel will be affected if you don't have this distinction in view. How you understand salvation will be affected if you don't have this distinction in view. And how you understand the Christian life will be affected. Theodore Beza once said, quote, with good reason, we can say that ignorance of this distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted and still corrupt Christianity, close quote. The elders of this church agree. A little more context for us before we start surveying passages from the gospels, in particular context of the coming of Jesus to earth. The incarnation of the Son of God, some context for that. There were promises made by God to his people of a Savior who would come. There were promises made by God in particular to David that a son of his would come, who would be a faithful son of God, who would deliver God's people from their enemies, who would restore God's people to their inheritance, who would cleanse the temple and lead the people of God to pure worship, and who would keep the law for God's people and represent them. And the prophets wrote about this one. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's Isaiah. Consider these words from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Also, Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. Now with all that by way of backdrop, Jesus came, and he preached the law 
and the gospel. Let's consider some passages together. We'll begin in Matthew chapter 5. This is the second of two consecutive weeks where we get to do a little bit of Bible drill here at CBC. So get your Bibles out if you have them and you can flip pages. If you have a Bible app and that's how you normally look at the scripture, get it out and you can look there. We're going to try to have the words to the text on the screen behind me. Thank you, Ryan, for your diligent effort with all the passages we're going to survey today. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17 through the uh, end of the chapter, verse 48, we're going to survey some portions here. This is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon on the law ever preached. The earthly ministry of Christ has begun not long before. He was baptized by John the Baptist in order to fulfill all righteousness. He was tempted in the wilderness by Satan in order to demonstrate that the new and better Adam is on the scene. The first one failed. The second one has succeeded and is victorious over the enemy. And now he is going to teach Just as God gave his law to Moses on a mountain, so Jesus on a mountainside will preach the law. The new and better Moses is here. Beginning in verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, some serious language here. Jesus is quite clear, and we know this. He's going to come and save us. And in coming to save us, he did not in any way come to abolish God's moral law. He came in order to fulfill that law for us in our place. This is what he means. He is very clear that we do not, in the era of the new covenant, dumb down the law and relativize it and water it down so that we can somehow sort of meet the standard. That is not how we are to operate. If anything, Jesus is going to turn up the temperature on the law as we're going to see here in Matthew chapter 5. So it is not in him coming to rescue sinners that the way that's going to be accomplished is to lower the bar. Far from it. We, he says, must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees and understand the context for that statement. Not only were the scribes and the Pharisees just the leaders of the day, and this is how the whole society, in terms of the society of Israel, operated. Not only is that true, but these were the experts on the law. These were the teachers. These were the religious authority. These were the ones who were revered and respected as those who had their lives together. And Christ is saying something quite shocking, that we you must have a righteousness that's greater than theirs. Examples now, he gives a number of them, of the standard of the law. So oftentimes, this is still the case. People take the law of God and we apply it in very surface level kind of ways. We apply it in a very external sense. Some kind of mere external conformity to the law pleases God. That's always been an issue with human beings. Jesus is going to blow that up with a number of different examples. Beginning in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Now he's quoting there the sixth commandment. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What is God's standard? It is not simply that you don't kill someone. God's standard goes deep. Mind, heart, feelings, desires, motivation, all of it. And if there's ever been anger there toward a fellow human being, you're a lawbreaker. Next example of the standard of the law, verse 27 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's he doing? He is applying the law to the hearts, the minds, the desires, the motivations of human beings as it was always intended to be applied. He is bringing the full weight of the law to bear on his audience and we, like they, are crushed by the weight. We can't stand up under it. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. Maybe you haven't had relations with somebody who's not your spouse, but have you ever lusted after someone who isn't? And if you have, you're a lawbreaker. Verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's Leviticus 19. But I say to you, here he goes again, I'm applying it to the heart. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You need to love people who hate you. You need to love people who persecute you. This is the standard of God's law. And if there's any doubt, verse 48, if there's any doubt, as to what the standard is, here's the nail in the proverbial coffin. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is why we say, when it comes to God's law, it is all or nothing. It is perfection or damnation. It's only two categories. In James chapter 2, other passages that we could consider, if you've broken one command, you're guilty of breaking them all. So this is the state of things. This is law, rightly applied, coming from the lips of our Savior. Next passage, Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16. Also a well-known passage for many. This is the rich young man or the rich young ruler. As it is sometimes described, there is an account in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We just happen to be in Matthew's account today. They all read very similarly. Again, many are familiar with this account. There's a young man who comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus responds, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. In some accounts, it's Jesus asks, why do you, because the, the young man calls him good teacher, why do you call me good? In this account, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one being, there is only one thing in the entire universe who is good. In other words, the way we need to understand that, no fallen human being is good. That's going to be important in this account. 
No fallen human being is good. Why do you ask me about what is good? If you want to have eternal life, he says at the end of verse 17, keep the commandments. In other words, if you want eternal life, obey the law. Verse 18, the man, you could, he's still, he's trying to justify himself according to the law, right? So he asks the question, which ones, which commandments? And Jesus gives him five of the latter six commandments of the second table of the law. He says, you shall not murder. Commandment six, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment seven, you shall not steal. Commandment eight, you shall not bear false witness. Commandment nine, honor your father and mother. Commandment five, and you, summary statement, shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do those. Verse 20, how does the young man respond? He says, effectively, I've done that. Effectively, what's he saying? I've kept the law. What else do I need? Verse 21. Jesus says to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, this is where things begin to often go off the rails from a law and gospel perspective. There's a lot of law and gospel confusion that often makes its way into our preaching and teaching and understanding right here. How many times have we heard, with the best of intentions, that to surrender all for Jesus is the gospel? I mean, we've heard that. The good news is surrender all for Jesus and you'll be saved. People also at this point, because people understand the dilemma here, because Jesus literally says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. So this is where people also begin to insert things into the text that are not in the text in order to make this work. Well, Jesus doesn't literally mean that we need to sell everything. What he means is that we need to at least be willing to sell everything for him. And with all due respect, it's not what it says. Remember what we said a minute ago, right? Remember, the young man has just claimed to have kept the law. And so what is Christ doing here? He is turning up the temperature again. He is dumping the full weight of the law on this man's conscience. The way we read verse 21 is this way. Jesus paraphrased. You say you've kept the law. Prove it. You say you have kept the law. You've loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you've loved your neighbor as yourself. Prove that. Prove your love for God and neighbor by selling everything you have and following me. In verse 22, we see that the young man, when he heard this from Jesus, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. When asked to prove that he has kept the law, by selling everything he has, giving it to the poor, and following Jesus, the young man cannot do it, and that is the point. He had not kept the law that he said he had kept. He had not kept the law that he thought he had kept. Verses 23 to 26. Let's do a little bit of explaining here before we move forward. 
because people often ask about this. And Jesus said to his disciples, after the man is left, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples respond to that with astonishment. Now, when we hear that, we're like, that's exactly right, Jesus. Love of money and all these things can't serve two masters. And like, we get it. You know, wealthy people are going to have a hard time entering the kingdom of heaven. We're not surprised he says that. The disciples are shocked he says that. How do you make sense of that? Remember the redemptive historical context of this account. Remember the national covenant that God made with Israel. There are a lot of verses in the old covenant, are there not, about how the Lord will bless people materially for obeying the law. Prosperity gospel preachers hijack those texts. They don't understand them in their redemptive historical context and say stupid things today. But in this situation, the disciples are freaking out because they're thinking, Jesus, this man is wealthy because he's obedient. He's wealthy because he's upright. The Lord has blessed him. If he can't be saved, who can? That's their question. Then verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, this is no human endeavor. This is no human achievement. Salvation is of God. The great irony, of course, in this whole account is that the one who could save the young man from the condemnation of the law was standing right in front of him. But the young man continued to rely on his ability to do what is required and thus walked away dejected. Saints, you will do the same thing. If you continue to rely upon your own ability to do what is required in order to be in right standing with the Lord, you will be crushed over and over and over again. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 and following. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 and following. Yet another well-known text, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I too am trying to flip with you. Many of you may beat me. Many of us are very familiar with this parable. I don't know that we're all that familiar with the four verses that come right before it, that set up the entire thing, that help us understand what it's about and why Jesus tells it. Beginning in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer, so think scribe, lawyer, right, stood up to put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's that question again. Jesus responds. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now that's an important, that's a dead giveaway. We're talking about law right now. What do you read in the law? How do you understand it? The scribe, the lawyer answers in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, Jesus responds, says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, those words that Christ is speaking in this whole interchange What is in the law? How do you understand it? That's important. When the man answers correctly, he sums up the two tables of the law, love God and love neighbor. Jesus affirms him. He says, you've answered exactly right. You have said exactly what the law says. Do this and you will live. Do the law and you'll live forever. It's Leviticus 18.5. Do this and you'll live. 
Then verse 29, again, the project becomes clear. The man is seeking to justify himself according to the law. Let's look at it. The lawyer, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's litigating. He is appealing to the law. Okay, Jesus, we've agreed on what the law requires. I want to be able to do it. Tell me who my neighbor is so that I can go out and achieve it. And that interchange, that interchange is what prompts Jesus to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's critical that we understand that before we would read the parable. Because you know the parable, so do I. The purpose of the parable of the Good Samaritan, secondarily, is to challenge and exhort all of us to love our neighbor sacrificially. Secondarily, we should love our neighbor sacrificially. The primary purpose of that parable is to crush that lawyer and the entire audience regarding what God's law requires when it comes to loving your neighbor. That is the point. And some people will make a big deal about how it's a very offensive parable because there's a Samaritan in it who is the protagonist. That's true, but that's only part of the offense. Part of the offense is the fact that the Samaritan and not the priest or the Levite actually loves his neighbor, but the offense of it is that Jesus is crushing people, making it quite plain that you will never be able to do this adequately. What is the point that Jesus is making to the lawyer and the entire audience present in this account. It's that he has not, they have not loved neighbor. He has not, they have not kept the law. That's the first primary point. Go back to verse 28. Just put your eyes there again. I want to unpack this a little bit more. Again, verse 28 and others like it is another situation where you see a lot of law and gospel confusion just show up over and over again. People will say, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, to understand sometimes the teachings of Christ when it comes to salvation, because there are times when he says very plainly, believe in me and you will be saved. Believe in me and you will have eternal life. But then in other places like this, he says to people, do these things, keep the law and you'll have eternal life. You know, it's just, it's confusing and it's mysterious Saints, you can do one of two things when you bump up against this reality. That Jesus, on the one hand, says, believe in me, and you'll have eternal life. And on the other hand, he says, keep the law, and you'll have eternal life. You can either pit the two against each other, faith in Christ and righteousness under the law, or you can see that one provides the other. That faith in Christ provides righteousness under the law. And you can do this. You can either, I should say, talk out of both sides of your mouth and sound schizophrenic when it comes to salvation, or you can see that what Jesus is doing when he speaks these words of law is crushing people with the law that they might come to him as Savior. It is a better and more biblical way. John chapter 3, verse 1 and following. This is the account of Nicodemus. Many will know that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but he 
always, it seemed, during the course of Christ's earthly ministry in the early portion and later, he is drawn to Christ. He comes under the cover of darkness to talk with Jesus because Jesus is controversial, right? He, Nicodemus, it wouldn't be good for him in terms of his post to be out in broad daylight talking with Jesus, meeting with him, so he comes at night to talk to him. And they have an interchange. Now this passage here is a gospel text. There is no law in this passage. Jesus is simply explaining to Nicodemus, this Pharisee, that God saves sinners through his Christ and by his grace. Let's look at it. I've already set the table in verses 1 and 2. Beginning in verse 3, Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All right, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus basically goes, bro, what are you talking about? How do I enter into my mother's womb again and, and be born? I can't do that. And Jesus effectively responds to him and is like, yeah, you're kind of understanding me in one sense because this isn't something that you can do. This is something that God does. You should not be shocked that it would be this way. Unless one, Jesus says, is born of water and the spirit. That's a reference to Ezekiel 36. God says he'll sprinkle clean water on us and put his spirit within us. That which is born of flesh is flesh, says Jesus. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel, don't be shocked that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Verses 9 and 10, Nicodemus still is asking, but how can it be this way? Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand that it is God who saves his people? And then in verse 13, Jesus goes to the how question. You know, Nicodemus keeps asking, how can this be? He's astonished. He doesn't understand. And Jesus is going to explain to him exactly how the plan is going to unfold. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Numbers 21, you remember that story right, where people are being bitten by snakes and they're dying. Moses fashions a serpent out of bronze and raises it up, and whoever looks upon that is healed. That was about Christ. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is straight gospel. The Son of Man crucified that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, in all of this, notice how disorienting the gospel is to Nicodemus. Notice how he can't fathom the gospel because he continues to think in terms of what he needs to do. I can't do what you're saying, Jesus. What you're saying makes no sense because how can anyone do that? That's the point. You can't. Here's what God has done. Here's what God is doing. Here's what God has always planned to do. The Son of Man crucified from the foundations of the world so that all who look upon him and believe in him might be saved and have eternal life. That's good news. Luke chapter 7. We'll do this briefly, beginning in verse 36. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. This is when the woman of the city 
who we would rightly understand to be a, a prostitute, goes to the house of a Pharisee named Simon. She goes because Jesus is there. Jesus has been invited over for dinner. Again, this is Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Jesus is at the Pharisee's house, and a woman of the city comes in. She's a sinner. The text is very clear. When she had learned that Jesus was there, she brought a valuable flask of ointment and stands behind Jesus, weeping, effectively cleaning his feet with her tears and her hair and anointing him with this ointment. Verse 39, the Pharisee is perplexed by what he sees. If this man were, in fact, a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. He wouldn't be doing this. He would not allow her to touch him. Jesus, of course, knows what's in man, right? So he asks the Pharisee a question. Simon, he says, I have something to say to you, verse 40. And Simon, the Pharisee, says, well, say it, teacher. And then this parable of sorts, right? There's a certain money lender. He has two debtors. One has a large debt. One has a relatively small debt. He forgives the debt of them both. Who will love him more? And the Pharisee rightly answers, well, the one who had the bigger debt will love him more. Jesus says, you're right. And then he says, turns to the woman, acknowledges her and what she's been doing. And he effectively says, look at what she has done for me. And you, Simon, haven't done anything. And he says, let's not get this twisted, right? It's not that what the woman did saved her. Jesus, don't, don't put the cart before the horse. He says, those who are forgiven much, love much. Not those who love much are forgiven. Those who are forgiven, love, right? So that's what's happened here. Verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then he turns to the woman. Having acknowledged her sin... To Simon and everyone, he turns to the woman, and what does he say? What kind of words does he have for her? Does he have words of law? Does he have words of harshness, judgment, condemnation? No. He has words of compassion, forgiveness, comfort, words of gospel. He says to her, your sins are forgiven. There that is. People freak out again in verse 49 because that's what people did when Jesus started pronouncing the forgiveness of sins because only God can do that. Who is this, they say, who even forgives sins? And then he says again, he speaks again to the woman, even as people are losing their minds around him. He speaks to her and he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's good news, man. It's not that being a woman of the city or being engaged in Gross sin is a good thing. It's not what this is about. We don't celebrate the sin, the mire that we're in. But we celebrate. We're here today because we have a Savior who looks at wretches like us and says, your sins are forgiven. And says, your faith in me has saved you. And you can go in peace. Matthew chapter 11. Also briefly, beginning in verse 25. Just consider these words of our Savior. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 through 30, the context here, Jesus has just pronounced judgment upon several cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. He said, you know, if what had been done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Judgment is going to be really, really bad for you. Then verse 25, at that time, at that time, right, he's just pronounced judgment on several cities. Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. What does that mean? These things. It's these things concerning him, right? 
You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus speaks words here of God's grace to the weak, to the needy, and to the helpless. And he rejoices in that grace to the weak and the needy and the helpless, those who are like little children. Then he goes on to say, what is the posture of our Lord toward those who are weak and who know they need him? Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whenever we start hearing that language of yoke and burden, we need to be thinking about the law, friends, because the yoke is a term that rabbis often use to describe the law. So when Christ is saying, you're laboring, you're heavy laden, and you've got this yoke upon you that's heavy, come to me and you'll find peace and rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we survey the gospel saints, we can observe our Lord's posture to, toward two different groups of people, and it's instructive for us. Toward those who thought that they were righteous or who thought that they could achieve righteousness under the law, who just were persistent, like, I can do what God requires, Jesus speaks words of law to them. At times, it sounds harsh. And we read it and are like, yeesh, I, that can't do that. But then, toward those who knew that they were not righteous, who knew they needed mercy, who understood themselves to be weak, Jesus speaks words of forgiveness and comfort and gives them gospel. As we're kind of transitioning toward the, the latter portion of the sermon where I, I want us to meditate and reflect some more on these things, a question that is often raised in the church goes something like this. As people are surveying, in particular, the New Testament, they ask, did Jesus and Paul preach the same gospel? People ask that sincerely. Did Jesus and Paul preach the same gospel? For me, as a pastor, I love it when people ask questions like that because it's a wonderful opportunity to clarify because that question is a dead giveaway that we have utterly confused the law and the gospel. That question is a dead giveaway that there is law and gospel confusion all over the place. Let's consider this for a minute. Romans chapter 2 and 3. It was read in our midst this morning. Let's think about the law and the gospel together. There's a lot of law and gospel confusion, not only between Jesus and Paul and what they taught respectively, but even in the words of Paul himself in the early portion of Romans 2. Romans 2, 6 through 13, it's an interesting text to pick up a commentary on Romans and read what people write. Because there, a lot of otherwise sound-thinking Protestant theologians lose their senses and say some crazy stuff. Romans 2, 6 through 13, what's the argument there? Like in the context, remember Romans 1, 18 and following, all the brilliant Gentiles are accountable to God and stand condemned. Romans 2, 1 and following, nobody can live up to their own standards, let alone God's. Right? You judge other people and by that same standard you condemn yourself. Romans 2, 6 through 13, we get here, this is where it gets really interesting. God will render to each one according to his works. 
To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give them eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Okay, so God is an upright judge and he's an impartial one. Any human being who does good, Jew or Greek, he'll reward with eternal life. Any human being, Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, who does evil, he'll punish. Then verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And again, this is where some brothers and sisters, meaning well, start to say things like, you know, it's mysterious. It's really mysterious how on the one hand, our salvation is all of grace. It's completely by faith, only in Jesus. But then there's this way that we can't quite fully understand that our works will factor into our final salvation. People say these things from texts like this. There again is a better way. Consider what Paul is doing in the flow of his letter. We've already thought about it. All the Gentiles stand condemned. You don't meet your own standard, let alone God's. God is an upright, impartial judge. He rewards those who do good. He punishes those who do evil. It is the doers of the law who will be justified. There's a problem, though. Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. What's the problem? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. No one, Paul, no one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The problem is no one's good. Now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under it, namely everyone, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The first use of the law is to show us our sinfulness. But now, we get the good news, right? So that's all been law, all law. Then the good news comes in, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That sounds very much like Jesus in Matthew 5. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody, like Adam, nobody has kept the covenant and are justified, all of us, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction for sins by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over sins that had been committed and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God's people still sin. How can he be just? He is just because of Christ. On account of him, the Lord is just and upright. 
because the punishment has been administered. Justice has been satisfied. Then the question, then what becomes of our boasting, asked Paul. It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Humbles us. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is this only true for Jews? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. This is true for all men without ex- exception, right? Without distinction, I should say. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Then this huge question. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, he says. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul taught law and gospel, just like Jesus. Law and gospel. They taught the same law. They taught the same gospel. I want to give us two takeaways And then I want to ask you a question. And again, I'm trying to be mindful of time. You guys are going to be like, bro, don't preach another topical message anytime soon. You're not as good at budgeting your time on these. Takeaway number one, here at CBC, like for us as in life together, we uphold the law. We preach it. We use it lawfully, 1 Timothy 1.8. Well, how do we go about doing that? Well, we preach the law and uphold the law in its three historical uses as Christians have understood them. The first use, the primary use of the law, Romans 3, Romans 5, Galatians 3, etc., is to show us our sin and drive us to Christ. Always. We do this every week. You hear this in some form or fashion every week in the things that we confess, in the things that are preached and sung. We acknowledge continually we cannot do what God requires. We're not going to get it twisted. Even on the backside of regeneration, we still cannot meet God's law adequately in order to merit his favor. We need to be reminded of that regularly, and we are reminded regularly that though we have not and can never meet the requirements of the law, Christ has met every one of them. And we are exhorted, pointed toward, encouraged in him weekly, and we're reminded all the time that he and his righteousness for us is why we're here. First use of the law, we uphold it. Second use of the law, we preach it. We uphold that. Well, what use is that? That is the use where we curb our corruption. We restrain our corruption through the right preaching of the law. What do we mean by that? Well, God's law is quite clear that his precepts, what he says to us, those things are good and they're good for us. The things that he prohibits are bad and bad for us. And so we, with the scripture, we say, Obey God's law. If God says it's good, you pursue that. It's going to be good for your life. And if you disregard what God's law says, it will bring destruction. We should talk this way with each other. As saints of old used to say, sin if you dare. Why do they say that? Sin if you dare because, brother, sister, it will ruin you. That's the second use of the law. There is good in pursuing God's law. There is nothing but destruction and ruin and evil in disregarding it. Third use of the law. This is in Christ Jesus. In Christ, the law is our perfect guide for living, right? This is what we do. This is how we speak. In Christ, the law no longer condemns. It no longer threatens. It cannot because Christ is satisfied. It's demands, and its penalty. It is our kind advisor, the law is. 
We now in our inner man delight in God's law, Romans 7, 22, and we pursue conformity to it in Christ. We cry out to God together and individually, Father, right, not only keep me from sin, but conform me, help me to live in a way that is good and honors you. And we trust his spirit to do that work. Third use of the law. We uphold all of these. So that's takeaway number one. We uphold the law, we preach it, we use it rightly. Takeaway number two, for us, we do not collapse law and gospel. We do not collapse law and gospel. We're going to keep them appropriately distinct. When it comes to justification, by that we mean, whenever you hear that word, just remember, God is declaring you just, upright, good. That's what justification means. To be justified is to to say that God has looked at you and has said, just. We don't collapse law and gospel when it comes to this. We maintain that we are justified on account of Christ alone. And just like we confessed earlier, some really good words to put in your mouth are that Christ is our whole and only righteousness received by faith. It is not our faith. It's not our obedience. It's not any other good thing that we do that's counted to us as our righteousness, but it is Christ's obedience to the whole law and his suffering and death under the law that is counted to us as our whole and only righteousness today and when we stand before him. So we do not get that twisted. We also do not collapse the law and the gospel when it comes to sanctification. And that is the process by which we are made more holy, right? We are being sanctified. Our new obedience as Christians, this is important, can never be powered by the law. Do you hear me? You're tracking. Our obedience as Christians can never be powered by, can never be driven by, fueled by, pick your word, the law. If you hear a lot of people speak in the church, it sounds like the law can sanctify. It cannot. It is only our union with Christ that brings sanctification. So in all of this, saints, justification, sanctification, the entirety of the Christian life, we maintain these things. If you're a note taker, write these down. The law cannot give life, it can only kill. The law cannot give life, it can only kill. Two, the law cannot save, it can only condemn. The law cannot save, it can only condemn. Three, the law cannot transform, it can only guide. The law cannot transform, it can only guide. Only Christ, only gospel, union with Jesus by faith can do any of that. That matters. Question now. So those are the two takeaways. A question for us. This is me as your pastor, but just this is me as one of us. I'm your brother in Christ. I struggle just like you. Where is it that so many of our doubts come from? Think about that. Where is it that so many of our doubts come from? Is it not from the law? Because we, like human beings, have always been prone to do, we tend to always go back to the law and do things with it that we should. We always try to turn it into some kind of covenant of works that we need to keep. Maybe not for salvation, full stop, but it's a covenant of works that we need to keep to at least prove that we're saved. We tend to forget the gospel. 
that Jesus really has done everything that God requires. And I think there lies within many of us a sneaking suspicion that we have not done well enough according to the law for God to really look on us with delight, for God to really be pleased with us. I mean, one way I would put it is we are disappointed in us, so God has to be. It's how we think deep down. But as it stands, saints, Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Amen? Amen. He is that because he kept it, the law, and he died under it, and he gives us all of that, and we receive it by believing. He is our representative, and he stands for us. He fulfilled the law's requirements and all of the law's penalties and in him by faith. Here's the mind blow, right? Is that it is as though we have fulfilled the law's requirements and it is as though we have fulfilled its penalty by merit, by virtue of what Christ has done for us. And it was the will of the Lord that it would always be this way. In Psalm 40, David pens words. If you want to flip there briefly, you can. If you want to just listen to me read it, you can. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. David pens these words. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written in my heart. Hebrews 10, verses 5 and following. The writer has already acknowledged that it's impossible for the old covenant, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, so a lot I could say about that. The writer of the Hebrews literally puts the words of David from Psalm 40 into the mouth of Christ. We'll think more about that next week. Psalm 1 and 2. Jesus said when he came, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book. When he, Jesus, said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, the old covenant, the law, and everything that it entailed to establish the second, his coming to fulfill it all. And by that will, the will of God and the will of Christ to do the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This was always the plan. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Saints, everything God demands in his law, he gives us in his gospel. He is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Every Christian in this room, we all want to please God, do we not? We do, yes. I know you're tired. I know it's long, but we do. We all want to be doing the work of God, do we not? Yes, we do. 
Well, take heart that at the most basic level, our Savior spoke these words, that this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. It starts there. Every Christian in this room, we all battle things, do we not? We all battle sin and the corruption of our flesh. We're all grieved by our sinfulness. We know that we face a thousand spiritual dangers. We know that we've been promised a homeland, but we're not there yet. So take heart. Our Savior says these words, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Father and the Son are one in the purpose of redemption. The Father gives us to Jesus. Jesus knows us and gives us eternal life. We are in his hands and we are in the Father's hands. No one will ever pluck us out. We will never be put to shame. And though we fall, we will not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds our hand. We will be raised by Jesus on the last day, imperishable, incorruptible, to dwell with God and one another on a redeemed earth. That is gospel. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.